invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to Matthew chapter 3 this morning, if you would. The text that we looked at, read a little earlier. As I read this text, and I'm sure you might have as well, it's not hard to come to the conclusion that the Christian life is a battle. Uh, We like a good fight. I mean, I think watching the movies that we watch in America and television series and shows, we like opposing famous foes. We like to see arch rivals duke it out, so to speak. We're all familiar with Batman versus Joker and Spider-Man versus the Green Goblin and maybe the classic Superman versus Lex Luthor. More recently, Avengers versus Thanos. Um, Now I'm really going to go into the archives. Sherlock Holmes versus Moriarty. Uh, Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader. I mean, they're all just opposing foes. They're arch rivals. They're basically, when it comes down to it, good versus evil. And the Bible uh, phrases it that way for us. There's two opposing, opposing forces in the Bible. We could call them arch rivals. And numerous ways of those... Uh, Battles, those fights are described in Scripture. Uh, The spirit versus the flesh. The love of God versus the love of the world. We have good versus evil. Um, Even cities, uh, Jerusalem versus Babylon. God versus Satan is ultimate. And obviously this morning we want to term it in in the view of heaven versus hell. In the Bible, um, they're not fictional stories. They're real life. It's about as real as it can get. Um, It's a literal, cosmic battle that is taking place every day. Uh, Much of it is invisible, um, but they're of eternal proportions, and it affects your life and mine. It's really what I call the battle behind every battle. Um, It's what Jesus faced. It's what all of us as Christians who follow him and seek to be like him will face every single day. And if you look in Scripture, as we read this morning, you'll see from the very outset of Jesus' public ministry um, that it was Jesus versus Satan the entire time. I mean, it was heaven versus hell. And that's not only true for him, but I think Jesus wants to emphatically declare to us this morning, if you have ears to hear, that that's also your life as a believer. Every one of us, every single one of us, every day, must decide who we're going to listen to. Concerning how we are going to live our lives. Whose kingdom will we be a part of? Whose kingdom principles will we live in week in and week out? So let me show you in the context of the passage that I gave you this morning. And and, and what it means to live that kind of life. And let me do it by connecting what I think Matthew does. Jesus' baptism to his temptation. Let me show you what I mean by how these two stories are connected. If you look at verse 3 and verse 13, just grammatically, circle the first word. It's the word then. And then also go to chapter 4 and verse 1, and you'll see it again, the word then. So that we have events moving in a progression. Um, and then you see it again in verse 5, when it goes actually through the events of the temptation. And then it's also used in verses 10 and 11. So you can see it a number of times um, 
Actually, verse, chapter 3 and verse 15 have it. So you have about five or six times in this text that then, 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 then. In other words, here's what Matthew wants you to think. Don't separate these two things from one another. Don't think that Jesus' baptism has nothing to do with his temptation. Because according to Matthew, he wants to teach us a vital lesson about spiritual warfare. He wants you to know that, see, the baptism and the temptation go together. Here's why. Look at the text. In the baptism, chiefly in verse 17, you hear the voice from heaven. When God himself says of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But you go right to the next chapter, chapter 4, and you have the temptation. And in that section, you hear the voice from hell. Because three times Satan comes to Jesus and tries to get him to do things that he knows are wrong. So you see, in one text, you have spirit baptism, and the next one, you have spirit battle. See, first in his life, there is water, and then there is wilderness. There is comfort, and then there is conflict. There is a blessing event, and there is a battle event. Can I tell you that as you look at these two events together, that is really a snapshot of what the Christian life is really all about. And perhaps you're here this morning and you have had a few of your own then events that have been connected one after another in your own life. Have you ever experienced an epic blessing from God and then immediately followed by an epic battle? See, I thought about that when Pastor Dave was giving his announcement. I mean, what a wonderful thing. It doesn't get any greater than reaching someone and seeing them get saved, right? But guess what? There should be a battle probably going to follow that. Because that's how the Christian life is. It's sometimes having a great triumph that's preceded by a great tragedy. See, these then connections, hear me, you got to get this down. These then connections in Jesus' life are not accidental, they are providential. See, they are God's doing Look in verse 16. It says the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And then look at chapter 4 and verse 1. It says that very same spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Can I tell you, please hear me, that is not a contradiction. That the spirit blesses Jesus, rests on Jesus, and God says, you're my son. And immediately that very same spirit leads him into the wilderness. And see, most of us think that Christianity... See, we're really good at the spirit and the dove episode. We love that. But we're not so good at the spirit and the devil episode. See, we, we're perfectly fine with the one, but not so much with the other. And the reason is, a lot of times, because we really misunderstand what the Christian life is really all about. We want to separate the baptism from the temptation. We want to separate the spirit like a dove and the spirit leading us to fight with the devil. We don't like both of those together. But what Matthew makes very clear, and you need to grasp if you're going to be victorious over the temptations that Satan brings into your life. See, there was no person who has ever lived that was more pleasing to God than Jesus. In fact, he says, this is my beloved son. And this is the father talking about his son, whom he greatly loves. And he's, there's no one who is more totally pleasing to God in every way than Jesus. And there was no one more completely led by the Spirit than Jesus. But yet you get the baptism, baptism and the battle. You get both of them. See what happens? See, 
the formula Matthew wants you to get is this. The more God pours his spirit and strength into your life, the more difficulty, the more problems, the more battles, and the more temptations at times in your life. Now, that's not how we think. We often think the opposite way. Our formula that we often function on is this, that the more my life is pleasing to God, the less problems, the less temptations, the less less hardships and sufferings there ought to be. We believe that if our life is really aimed at pleasing God, that we should have more peace and more tranquility. But Matthew gives us a stark reality that the opposite is more often the truth. Have you ever thought about this possibility? And just hear me out. If your life is absolutely spiritually tranquil, if it's comfortable, if there's no conflict inside or outside, then maybe you are not being led by the Spirit. See, Maybe you're not attempting great things for God. Maybe, just maybe, you're not really living a life in every area pleasing to God. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, And all those who live godly in Christ Jesus, all of them will suffer persecution. See, what Jesus says, the more godly you are, the more difficulty you'll have because of it. See, that's the formula. So if you're going to please God with your life and you're going to do it as much as you possibly can in as many areas as you possibly can, get this down in your life. You are going to experience conflict because of it. Inside pressures and temptations, outside opposition and resistance. Mark is so, in his gospel, when he records these two events side by side, and he does... He puts a word in there that's very common to his gospel that Matthew doesn't have. And it's the word immediately. In other words, he says the Spirit of God, the Spirit came down and went on Jesus, rested on Jesus at his baptism. And then the next word, chapter 4, verse 1, not 4, verse 1, but in his text, chapter 1, is that immediately he was led by the Spirit into the desert and the wilderness. See, immediately, there was no break. See, Mark and, and Matthew want you to get there is no contradiction that when you please God, there will be problems. One of my favorite verses in the Gospels that I wish I could base, my, I wish it was more true of my life, more consistently, is what Jesus said in John eight twenty nine. Listen to these words. He who sent me is with me. He has le- not left me alone. For I always do those things that are pleasing to him. Always. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that? I mean, wouldn't you like to say that there is not a day, there's not a thought, there's not a word, there's not a motive, there's not a desire, there's not an action that you are not pleasing God? Jesus did. He could say that. And where did it take him? What happened as a result in his life? Well, even in the chapter 8 of John, immediately he has a huge argument about origins, about where he comes from, from the Pharisees. And at the end, he claims to be God because he says, before Abraham was, I am. And at the end of it, they pick up stones to stone him. You see, the more pleasing Jesus was, the more they wanted to kill him. Can I tell you, you got to get it under your belt this morning. That that's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is mainly a struggle. It is a fight. It is a battle. And we have to know that. 
Now that we know that, listen, the question is we need to know a couple things about how to fight it. We need a couple lessons in what I'm going to call wilderness warfare. And that's where chapter 4 steps in. And Jesus is through his temptations of the devil, after being 40 days and 40 nights fasting, he's going to teach us a couple things. Now that we know life is a battle and Satan is real, and this is what we're up against every day, he wants us to give us the how-to, how to fight it. And he's going to give us in two things. Let me unpack them one at a time. Number one, what are we fighting against? If you'll notice in the text, when Satan attacks Jesus, the main point of attack, I call it the front lines of the battle between Jesus and Satan, rest on this topic, his identity. See, this is about his identity. And if you read Matthew's gospel very clearly, all the way leading up to chapter 4 of the temptation, here's what you're going to find, that the whole book so far is about proving who Jesus is. Chapter 1 is a genealogical identification of Jesus. And it goes through all the history of Jesus' background, his birth, who he came in line with. He was the son of Abraham, he was the son of David, and all the kings and all the people. Because through his genealogy, Matthew wants to point out that this is who Jesus is. He's the son of God. Matthew chapter 2 is a geographical identification. And and Matthew goes through very pains and stretches to be able to say, hey, let me quote all the scriptures that he had to be born in Bethlehem. And he had to be in Galilee. And out of Egypt, he was called my son. And he goes through all the places in prophetic scripture that Jesus had to be involved with. Chapter 3 is a prophetical identification because John the baptizer comes up as the greatest prophet ever because he was so close to Jesus. That he says this is who Jesus is. And we get to know him. He's the voice crying. He's preparing the way of the Lord. That's what John says. That's his voice. So he identifies Jesus as the Son of God too. Then of course we have the supernatural identification of Jesus. Because chapter 3 ends with God himself from heaven. As if the first three weren't enough. God himself says, this is my beloved son. So everybody so far is in agreement. The prophets are in agreement. The scriptures, the genealogies, John, God himself, they're all in agreement. This is who Jesus is. This is his identity. He's the son of God. Now when Satan comes on the scene, after all of that, in chapter 4, what he doesn't do is doubt or put to question who Jesus is. Not that part of his identity. That's not what he's going to attack. You see, because Satan knows from before things were created, he knows that nobody's going to be fooled. Jesus himself, he knows who he is, and Satan knows who he is, and the demons, and the everybody knows. God knows who Jesus is. He's the son of God. But that's not what he's going to attack when he attacks his identity. Listen, what he does is he doesn't dispute who Jesus is, but what he disputes is what it means to be who he is. See? That's why in chapter 4, verses 3 and 5, look at them twice in this text. It says, if you are the Son of God, and it's a little misleading because if means there's a question mark with it, but it's not because it's a first-class conditional phrase in the original language, and it better should be translated since or because. So read it that way. Since you are the Son of God. it's not I, Satan knows who Jesus is, but what he wants to do in Jesus' life, hear me, and what he wants to do in your life as a Christian, as a Son of God. He's not going to try always to tell you that you're not a Christian, although he can do that at times. But you know what he wants to do? 
He wants to tell you what it means to be a Christian. He wants to define for you how to live as a Christian. So his main tool here is not doubt, it's definition. What Satan loves to do in your life and mine, as he tried to do in Jesus, is he likes to use the same vocabulary, but also a different dictionary. See, he likes to say what Matthew is saying, what the prophets says, what God says. Yeah, you're the son of God. I'll let you have the title, but I want to fill in the definition of what the word means. And the question that we have to ask and what the text is begging us to ask is, what will Jesus do? Because he's heard two voices. In, at the baptism, he heard the voice of heaven. And the temptation, he's now going to hear the voice of hell. And the question is, which one will he listen to? And of course, that's the question posed to all of us this morning. Because it happens numerous times every single day. See, Satan's going to attack you. He's going to come after you. And if you're a, a son of God, see, you're going to hear God's word at church. And hopefully, as you open your Bibles every day and you read the scriptures, see, you're going to hear heaven's voice. But every day when you go to work, you go out in the culture, you go to school, you go to your job, and, and depending on who you're hanging out with, you're also going to hear the voice of hell. And the question is this morning, whose voice do you really listen to? And you can see it right off the bat in each one of these events. You remember in the baptism? Look at the text again in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Did you hear the little conversation Jesus has with John? He comes to be baptized. He comes to the Jordan. And what does John the baptizer say to him? Because he knows who Jesus is. Right? You know what he says? Jesus, you come to be baptized by me? What's he saying? I have need to be baptized by you. You know what? Here's what John would say in 21st century vernacular. Jesus, you've got it wrong. You've got it backwards. You know what baptism means? Jesus, I, I need baptism. Other people need baptism. You don't need baptism. Because I know who you are. You're up here and I'm down here. L listen, but you getting baptized by me, that switches it. You're putting me up here, and you're putting yourself down here. Jesus, that's not how it's supposed to be. But what does Jesus say to John? John, let it be so now. Jesus understands what it means to be the Son of God. See, to be the Son of God is not to assume this, but to assume this. See, he should be the baptizer, and John should be the baptized, but Jesus reverses it. He takes John's place, and that's why he came. That's what it means to be the Son of God. It means he is going to take the place. He is going to lower himself. He is going to power under. He is going to be not like any other king of any other nation, of any other kingdom of the world. He's going to be a different kind of king. He is going to follow what God says it means to be the son of God. Let me even tell you even stronger in the text that he's listening to God. Because in the voice of heaven, God himself 
talks this way of Jesus, and he uses two phrases. Both of them are scriptural quotations. He says, this is my beloved son. That is a quotation directly from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. And everybody who listens to the voice of heaven in that day and heard God say that would know that that is a direct reference to the messianic psalm of Jesus inheriting the nations. That someday that he is going to rule the nations and he is going to be king and he's going to rule them with a rod of iron. That's what Psalm 2 says. God says to his son, this is my son and you're going to sit on the throne. But what the psalm doesn't say is how he will be king. See, this is my beloved son, the Bible says. But how will he be king? How will he be king and son of God? Well, God tells him by what else he says. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased is a direct quotation from Isaiah 42 in verse 1, where God says, and I delight in him. I delight in him. He's my beloved son, the one that I love. I delight in. Psalm Isaiah 42.1 is one of four suffering servant passages in the prophecy of Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesies that someday there's a king coming. But what the Old Testament people and, and even Jewish people to this day cannot put together is how he can be king and how he can suffer at the same time. But we all know. We all know Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53. We know how it happened. Because you know how Jesus became king? He suffered. He put himself under. He took the place of sinners when he had never sinned himself. See, he knows because God has told him, this is what it means to be the son of God. You're going to suffer and you're going to die and you're going to be humiliated and you're going to power under. See, that's the voice of heaven. That is God telling his son, this is what it means to be who you are. But at the very same time, and isn't this how it happens in your life, in the life of your teenagers? At the very same time that God from heaven is telling them, this is who you are, and this is what it means to be who you are. Do you hear this? At the very same time, young people, Satan is going to do the same thing that God is doing. And that's what you see in chapter 4 and verses 3 through 10. There are three temptations, and Satan, through those temptations, wants Jesus to let him fill in the definition of what it means to be the Son of God. God has said, this is what it means. And now Satan says, like he did to Adam and Eve, don't listen to him, listen to me. This is what it means for you to be the Son of God. And he tells him, first off, you don't need to have... You don't need to fast for 40 days. You don't need to go without bread. You don't need to go without hunger, without food. You're the king of all things. Your position is here Take your power and turn these stones into loaves of bread. You should do that. Do you realize who you are? You have rights. This shouldn't be happening to you. Temptation number two. You don't have to get the religious leaders angry at you. You don't have to have people hate you. It doesn't have to turn out that way. All you got to do is let me take you to the pinnacle of the temple, which is 300 feet higher than the valley below, jump off of it, kind of float down in the air and land properly. And when the religious leaders see it, they're going to know you're God. 
So you can forego all these problems. You don't have to have these conflicts. You don't have to have them pick up stones to want to get rid of you. You don't, want to ha- you don't have to have them crucify you. Use your powers. Use what it means to be son of God. Use it for yourself. And then he even himself quotes scripture to him. The angels are going to do it. Why wouldn't you do it? Thirdly, he says, you don't have to die on the cross to get the messianic promises in Psalm 2. You know how you can get all the kingdoms of the world? You know how you can be the ruler that you've been meant to be because you're the son of God? Just bow down and worship me. And by doing so, you can shortcut all the suffering and the pain and the humiliation and the powering under. You can be who you were really meant to be. Sound familiar? See, son of God means, Satan would say, that you have power, that you have rights. You have a position. Use it for yourself. And Satan would whisper in Jesus' ear, you're the king not a servant, so act like it. You deserve honor, not humility. You should power over, not power under. And Satan might even have said something like, John the baptizer gets it. Why can't you get it, Jesus? Can I have you turn just quickly to see this in, can I say, even greater detail? Turn over to Matthew 16, same gospel, and I want to show you Because Matthew 4 is a a direct attack on the meaning of who Jesus is. But in Matthew 16, it is the same scenario, but rather an indirect act. Because Satan is not saying it. He's saying it through Peter. Now get this. And this is even more subtle. Because he's saying it through someone who has a relationship with Jesus. Someone Jesus has invested his life into. Someone that's very close to Jesus in his inner circle. And now Peter is going to talk with words from hell. Notice, this passage in Matthew 16 is also a passage about Jesus' identity because that's how it starts. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 13, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, what do they think my identity is? And so they give a lot of answers and then he says, more importantly, listen, To his own disciples, who do you say that I am? See, it's about Jesus' identity and what it means to be him. And from heaven, we hear a voice. Not from God directly, but directly from God through Peter. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you know what Jesus says? You didn't get this on your own. This didn't come to you by flesh and blood. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. You see it? The voice of heaven is speaking through Peter. That that's who Jesus is. This is his identity. He is the Son of the living God. But the question is, what does that mean? How is he going to live that out? Who's going to determine that? And so Jesus, in the next few verses, begins to tell them, here's what it means. Here's what the voice of heaven tells me it's Son of God means. See, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to beat me, and they're going to whip me, and they're going to, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter grabs Jesus, literally, by the shoulders. And here's what he says. Lord, it will never, double negative in the Greek, it'll never happen to you. 
and, 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 and in just a few moments, Peter goes from the voice of heaven to the voice of hell. So much so that Jesus says about Satan to Peter, be gone, Satan. See? See, you got it again. You got the voice of heaven and you got the voice of hell talking. And it's about what it means to be Jesus, what it means to be the Son of God, how he's going to live it out. And you know what Peter thinks? He thinks, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You shouldn't have it that way. You're the king. That'll never happen to you. You're not going to suffer. You shouldn't have those things happen to you. And you know what? That's hell talking. That's hell talking. So you got the voice from heaven, and you got the voice from hell. And Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, really, really to Satan, get behind me, Satan, for you are, listen to this, for you are not setting your mind, verse 23, on the things of God, but the things of man. Did you catch that? That's where Satan's after. He wants to get you into his framework of how to think about the Christian life. He wants you, this is what it means to be a Christian. He says, okay, if you're going to be a Christian, at least I'm going to tell you how to be one. And so he tells, this is what it ought to be in your life. And so Satan says to you, since you are a son of God, let me define for you what your Christian experience should be like. And so he says to some and whispers even to those who perhaps are here this morning, you shouldn't have to be lonely. See, you've, you desire somebody in your life to share your life with, but it hasn't happened or you haven't had the right one, that's for sure. So what if the person that you love and that you want to marry, so what if they're not a Christian? You should be able to have some happiness in your life. God should be able to understand that, right? And he whispers, see, you're a Christian, but does a Christian mean you can't be happy? So God, why would God say that you can't marry this person? Satan will whisper, you shouldn't have to wait until you're married to have sex. Nobody waits that long. It's unreasonable. God gave you these urges, right? Shouldn't you be able to do those things? Besides, you really love her or you really love him, don't you? And isn't that what matters most of all? And Satan will do it not just directly into your heart and life, but Satan through your friends, someone close to you, will say things like, you know what, God should never have let that happen to you. Look how you like to live, look how you try to live for him, you try to please him, and what happens? You get cancer. And, and your marriage doesn't go very well. And can, Why doesn't God turn your kid's life around? And, and believe, How is it possible that when you love him and you're tithing to him, that he takes away your job? Now, now what is that about? See? And too often God's people don't realize that's hell talking. See, hell, when it talks, has a crown but no cross. But when heaven talks... It's a cross before crowns. Hell, when it talks, is all about self-pleasure and very little about God-pleasure. But heaven, when it speaks, is first and foremost about God-pleasure and self-pleasure is derived from God-pleasure. Hell, when it speaks, is about kingdom now, heaven, kingdom later. 
to use Jesus' words. See, when you are about listening to the voice of hell, what you think about are the things of man. Now things, permanent, per- personal things, temporary things, things that can satisfy you for the moment. But see, when heaven talks, it's not the things of man that are foremost. It's the things of God, the eternal things, the spiritual things that you cannot always touch or see that are, all, that are right in front of you. They are eternal things. So the first wilderness warfare lesson is this. You know what it is? What are you fighting against? It is against a mindset. It is against a framework. It is against a mentality that somehow Satan can define for you that the Christian life should never have troubles or problems or suffering. And when they come, it surprises you and blows you out of the water. But here's what Jesus says. No, it's part. It it is part of what it's about. Because the Christian life is a struggle. And lastly, can I give the other one real quickly? Not only what are we fighting against, but what are we fighting with? Jesus tells me, you've got to know both, the negative and the positive side. And, and if you look in our text, every single time Jesus hears Satan's words, you know what he does? He speaks God's words. Did you catch that? He says three times, verses 4, 7, and 10, it is written, it is written, It is written, now it's not all he says, in one sense he says, be gone Satan, verse 10. And then three times he says, it is written. Here's the principle, ready? You can only only silence Satan's voice with God's voice. We have to in our Christian life, if we're going to live out the victory over the test and the temptations of Satan, if we're going to follow the model of Jesus and through his cross, death, and resurrection, we're going to live out the victory he has provided. Can I tell you this? You have to be able to both say, be gone, Satan, and it is written. If you want to have hell shut up, you better have heaven speak up. And you have to be able to do both. I read the text, and I know it's obvious, but maybe 21st century people, we overlook it. Did you know that when Jesus was fighting and when he, against Satan, and then when he was withstanding his temptations, and he quoted, it is written three times from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, do you know what? He didn't have a Bible with him. But he had a Bible in him. Do you know that? He didn't have a Bible with him, but he had a Bible in him. And Jesus was able to live out his true identity in a way that pleased God because he had mastered the scriptures, you see. And I don't mean just be able to quote them as my discipleship group did on Wednesday night, how good as that is. Listen to Psalm 119 and verse 11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. Hidden in my heart. See, you're never going to fight temptation of Satan and win unless the word of God gets off the page and into your heart. And when you hide something in the Old Testament, they didn't have safety deposit boxes. They didn't have all those things. So the word hidden really could be treasured. When you treasure what God says, when you treasure what the voice of heaven says over the voice of hell... See, when that's how much you love God's word, it makes all the difference in the world. There are three new Star Trek movies. The second one is Into Darkness. And if you're not paying attention, you might miss one of the major themes that runs through the movie. 
in the be- beginning of the movie, there's a kind of a broken down colony, and they, in, they look into this one house or room, and there's a bunch of books on the shelf, and they zoom in on the one. It's sitting there on the shelf, and it says Moby Dick on it. And you don't think much of it, unless you've seen the whole movie or you're watching carefully. And if you remember anything about Moby Dick, it was about Captain Ahab, who's this ship, and he's going after this great whale, and he eventually tries to kill this whale, but the whale bites off his leg, and for the rest of his life he has one leg, and he's very bitter about the whole thing. So the whole rest of his life, if you read the book, is a revenge story about how he's going to get back at the whale and everything and everybody in his life. Nothing else matters but getting revenge on this whale. And he'll do it no matter what it costs him and what it costs anyone else who's around him. And so you come to Captain Kirk and Khan. They are arch rivals, right? This is what we talked about at the beginning. They're arch rivals. And see, what you find is that at the end of the Moby Dick book, when he's trying to kill the whale and he's going to lose, you know what he says? He quotes this in the book. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. That's what Captain Ahab says. Well, Khan is trying to kill everyone who has anything to do with the Federation, with Captain Kirk, because they're mortal enemies. And at the end, Khan is going to die. He knows he's not going to make it, but he has an explosive, and he's going to blow up a bomb, and it's going to kill everybody, including Captain Kirk. And he's okay with that. And in the movie, here's right before he dies, here's what, what he says. He says, from hell's heart, I stab at thee. That's what Khan says. And what you come to the realization is, you know that book that was on the shelf? That's what he's been reading all these years. He's been reading Moby Dick, and now Khan has become Captain Ahab. Because his whole life has been revolving around getting revenge. Because what he meditated on, what he read, is what he became. And his death just made it clear. Contrast that with Jesus. He's also dying not to get revenge, but to give redemption. And on the cross, in the middle of his agony, he says this, and it's scripture. Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to this. He's in a trial. He's done nothing wrong. He is pleasing God, and God is not there. And you know what he doesn't say? My cruel God, you are so hurtful. No, he says, my God, my God. I know that you are not with me, and I know it because of my sin, but here's what he says, and I still say you're my God because he's still living out what it means to be the Son of God. And that's why on the cross in that passage in Matthew 27, you know what the religious leaders are saying? Hear this again. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, see, he's still choosing, even in his worst trial and his worst suffering and death, he's still saying, yeah, I'm the Son of God, and let me show you I listen to the voice of heaven. This is what it means to be the Son of God. And I'm willing to pay the price. And the question for us this morning is, are you? Whose voice are you listening to? The voice of heaven or the voice of hell? Well, I'm a Christian, but that's, praise God for that. But let me tell you, who defines what it means every day for you to be a Christian? 
Who defines it for you, teenagers? Who defines it for you, adults? Who defines how you're going to face life and struggles? Who's going to tell you how to live your life every day? It'll depend on whose voice you're really listening to. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray this this afternoon for God's people. Because we are God's people, because we are the sons of God, does not exempt us from hardships and struggles and fights and suffering. Peter learned that the hard way. And later he would write, Think it not strange, brethren, when you have fiery trials. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, God's family, who are struggling, who are fighting, who are warring. May they war the good warfare. May they fight the good fight. And may they do it knowing what they're fighting against. That is to maintain what it means to be a son of God. And help them, Father. Help all of us to do it with your word. It's the only way we can silence the voice of hell is with the voice of heaven. Help us to know your word and not just know it intellectually, but know it in our lives in a way that it permeates and dominates and saturates everything we do. Please help us that we might live the life of victory that we have because of the Son of God, as Paul said, who loved us and gave himself for us. For it's in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.